That's how it starts. The fever, the rage, the feeling of powerlessness that turns good men cruel. Welcome, I'm Andrew Dice. And I am Stephen Colbert. And this is Batman v Superman by the minute. It's a minute by minute rewatch podcast where we rewatch Batman v Superman one minute at a time and then we podcast about it. Some minutes are light, some minutes are dense. I think we have arrived at a dense one. This is minute 42 we've reached. Senator Finch arrives in Lex Luthor's I don't have anywhere near enough money to know what you call this room. It's a fireplace room. His fireplace room. Well, we're, we're I guess, on the record as fans of Lex Luthor. So we'll see how we feel about him after this minute. Are you ready to get biblical? I am always ready to get biblical. This was his room. I kept it just the same. Hmm. Ah. Oh. Maybe one day Dad'll come back if I just keep everything the same. <laughs> that is silly. The magical thinking of orphan boys. I'm blocking the import license for your mineral. In the previous minute, we got the first, just the first taste of the no bourbon. Uh, the entry into this room, Lex Luthor's room of death and biblical allegory. <laughs> based on what is going on here. I know that Lex doesn't strike me as a hunter, so I guess I kind of always assumed that almost everything in this room belonged to his father. The rhino head mounted over the fireplace, the massive elephant tusks decorating each side of the fireplace. There is a lion head concealed in shadow on the left side of the screen. There is a lamb head mounted up higher on the wall behind him. Behind Lex, there is going to be a sphinx concealed in shadow already i couldn't have appreciated it at the time maybe it's different for you but when this was playing out i still did not know that lex was kind of the brilliant malevolent schemer that he turns out to be so in hindsight a lion a lamb a sphinx at the time i think the first time seeing it it probably seemed a little like performative or theatrical yeah, or it, it's it's funny to go back to one of the things that changed for me with this watch versus other watches. And I always go back to this because it's kind of a joke, but it's also maybe true enough that it's hilarious is that basketball game and the notion that he had mm-hmm. a stage that he was going to be shooting the ball right when they came through. And this kind of has that same feeling, but just on an entirely different level. Yeah. Where like he spent like the entire day with Mercy where he'd like come through the door and be like, oh, no, you got to move the the lion's head over to the left a little bit. It's not, yeah, yeah. it doesn't present the right image. And then I think the big one is he, well, so he, we have the, um, the no bourbon in the last yeah. minute, which I had Casually to Casually pouring a drink as the Senator enters. Exactly. I had to, Oh, hello. I was not expecting you mm-hmm. in this, in my fireplace room with my, with my bourbon. <laughs> so then, but then what he, what he says is my dad always said what Kentucky mash, a good Kentucky mash is the, the, the key to good health or something. No, he didn't. <laughs> yeah, of course. Exactly. No, <laughs> there's no way L- Lex Luthor Sr. was like, he's, where, where was he from? Germany? Yeah. Why would he say that? Yeah. Like he, if, if he was a bourbon fan, it was not Kentucky mash. Mm-hmm. Ironically, he's saying that to the senator from Kentucky. <laughs> so, so he's got 
Kentucky mash on hand just for that. And that's fine. You know, people procure alcohol or, or food or whatever that seems, uh, or he has it on hand already, maybe because he knows it has maybe some sort of personal stake to Finch. So like, that's all fine. But all the entire thing together is so. Yeah, theatrical and meticulously staged and then matched with his like attempt to brush it all off as oh i just was gonna be doing this anyway (laughs) yes is everything that i love about this lex yeah there's there's a lot in this minute i i feel like this minute and the minute to follow there's a lot of things that are kind of set up and paid off to do with lex specifically yeah i will point out the bottle of bourbon is pappy van winkle's more than $2,000 a bottle usually, so... I didn't check that, but yeah. um, there's a phenomenal podcast on, on Pappy Van Winkle that I listened to a while back that you sh- there's only so many podcasts on, uh, <laughs> on Pappy Van Winkle, so just check that out, and I'm you, sure... That should not be hard to find. I don't remember who it was, but yeah, it's fascinating. It's like, it's super, super rare, but I think it's one of those things that they kind of artificially control the market on it. Ah. I know someone that has had some, and he said it is, it is excellent, so... Yeah. Well, clearly that was uh, Zack Snyder's secret meaning. Yes. I, I do think maybe it's not given enough credit after the fact that Lex's father plays such a big role in Lex's life, and these two points are probably not connected that much. He says later, I left the room... You know, I guess we can go through the dialogue later, but the big point for me was this was how my father had this room. Yeah. That tells us so much about who his father was, but I really want to zero in, I guess for Lex as a whole character, is this room speaks to the veneer of class and sophistication and old world wisdom. Yeah. You know, while it's covering death, there there are symbols of death fire there are two matching big black urns on the fireplace yeah the room is under the surface the room speaks to something more sinister and i feel like that's just the perfect encapsulation of who who lex is for me now in this scene like who he's revealed to be and then who he kind of becomes for the rest of the movie yeah well and the whole father aspect is is fascinating because this in this movie we talk a lot about mothers for obvious reasons, but go back to Lex's other scenes. We don't have a moment with Lex in this movie yet where he doesn't introduce himself in the context of his dad. So when he's first introduced introduced at the basketball game, it's my father's name. He's Lex in front of the corp. And then he talks about um, waving daisies at tyrants yep. and all that in there. And then we get here and he says, my my dad always said that good Kentucky mash is the key to good health. And then he says that uh, I left it exactly as, as my father left it. The other thing about the alcohol sort of, I think, tied to the point that you just made there that I, I read that I think is really fascinating is that in this movie, alcohol is a motif for, for lies. Hmm. And I kind of thought back on that after... After I, I read that, and it's kind of fascinating because here, obviously, like, as he pours it, he's telling what I, I'm sure is a lie about his dad being a fan of Kentucky Mash. Yeah. Um, well, this whole thing is a deception. By yeah, him, the entire right? scene is a, is, a, is a theatrical deception. Yeah. And then you go back to like the last time I remember alcohol being in the movie was Bruce at the uh, at the fight when he was deceiving Kanaizev. And then we'll have we'll have more throughout in the future of the movie too, but it's really interesting. Well Lois had the the glass of wine when she was trying to figure out what had just happened. Right, exactly. Well and she wasn't telling Bruce about the bullet. Clark. Yes, Clark. Um What wait. <laughs> well no she no well she, like I said, she wasn't telling Bruce. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Man of Steel was so much a story about fathers, but they were both good. 
Bruce's relationship to his father is also that he was a, a, a we only know him as a good man. And then you have Lex who is like, what happens if your father was a monster? Well, and That's so sad. <laughs> and I guess I should say one of I one of the things that I read through this week as I looked at some of this that I, I stole a few notes from I should credit up front before I um, I steal too much is um, Charles Bowyer for um, comic book debate wrote a phenomenal breakdown on a, on a lot of this stuff. And so as I was, I was looking for details on a couple paintings and that's how I found it. But then the, um, in addition to the information about the paintings, it also um, had some interesting stuff in the text. And so like, that's where I read the, the note about alcohol, which was fascinating. And then the other was that Lex, uh, both Lex and Bruce, but like especially Lex in this scene, project their fathers onto Superman. Yeah, which I thought is a really kind of fascinating take, and we'll we'll see more of that later in the movie also. But we see their true thoughts on their on their father by the way it shapes what they think about Superman, who is sort of a stand-in for for like a a god figure, yeah. which is you know religiously typically a father figure of some kind. And so it's weird for it to be Superman when you realize that Superman is a stand-in for a god figure who is typically represented as a father figure. It makes sense thematically. As we kind of pull in to Lex, there is what looks to be a painting wrapped up in a tattered sheet banded together. And I had the thought of there are no portraits of Lex's parents that we get to see, uh, but we will we'll, we'll return to that in the next minute. For now, I guess we can move to the the dialogue that they have, which is – I feel like we've talked about so much of this now that it's – we risk repeating ourselves, but whatever. Uh, if anyone has not realized when he says the magical thinking of orphan boys that we are dealing with three of them in this story. Yeah. And I like that as a – it's not limited to this, but I so often now – uh, I find it rewarding to consider the ideas that are put forward in this movie that are reframed by each of the three men. Mm -hmm. it, it would be useless to, to list them because it just kind of goes on and on and all of them are there. But in this case, it is like you kind of spoke to it, how they – what do you do with that? We've talked about how Superman doesn't know because Jonathan didn't know. Yeah. The lessons that Jor-El had to teach are done. He's kind of – he was going on faith <laughs> at this point. Um, and we'll get there with, with Bruce even though his relationship with his mother is obviously – Yeah. Well, and like there – and literature, I guess maybe that's a very broad way to phrase it. But but there's a common theme that men – sort of their role is to become their father or to replace or, or defeat or subsume yeah. their father in some way. When you look at it in that context, the fact that they're orphans, it's not just that they're trying to become their father, but also wrestling with and trying to understand at the same time because they were all deprived. Like they are all in a place where they, they have all exceeded and Bruce speaks to this specifically later in the movie, but they have all run out of like track when it comes to yeah. they, have, they have no memories of their dad at the age that they are at. Now, well, yeah. I guess Clark does, but he doesn't have like the that the life advice that he would have needed because he's in doing things that Jonathan never had context for. I think like yeah, the the idea of sons becoming their fathers, Clark gets kind of the healthy way of doing that it feels like. Yeah. Bruce gets the uh, like unwitting, <laughs> you know, unhealthy way of doing it, and then Lex just okay, here's the tragic uh version of it because yeah. the son of the monster becomes one. We don't technically know that is happening yet because at this point Lex seems still like he is trying to charm June when she just lowers the gavel we're denying your import license yeah and and he seems genuinely surprised and and upset 
buy that. Whereas almost everything else up to this point, he has seemed like everything was going his way pretty much. And he was like dancing kind of through the plot. Like he was clearly the puppet master pulling the strings. Yep. And this is the, she literally stops his fingers from, from drumming. Like he's got this theat, he's, he's performing for, for yep. her and he's drumming his fingers and she stops it. That is probably one of the biggest in a movie where two of the most powerful superheroes and ideologies clash. Probably one of the most powerful moves in the entire story is her stopping him drumming his fingers. Yeah. And the moment, the moment right after she says, I'm not going along with you, you're not getting what you want. It does feel like that's the first moment where we see the real Lex. Yes. He is mocking her with mm-hmm. his, the red capes are coming. Uh, if, if anyone doesn't know the, like Paul Revere's midnight ride, the, I guess like what folk tale eyes, Paul Revere during the American Revolution, the red, ca- the red coats are coming. You know, he was standing watch to see if, if the British were coming. One if by land, two if by sea, hang the lantern. Lex is reframing here as he is saying that June, I get, because that's what I mean. It's mocking, but it's also an accusation. Well, right. Cause the implication is that, and he says this earlier, right? They say, but Superman's our side. He's like, oh, yes, but there are, there are others. Um, and they won't all be as nice as him. And so a, a metaphor of uh, to compare it to the British invasion to say that, you know, to just compare it to an invasion in general, yeah. suggesting that more will come and they will be like Superman and we will be unprepared and it will be your fault. Yeah. And you've made yourself out to be the person, you know, watching on the wall. Yeah. But you're not doing it. I think we end there before he drops any of the where, where this conversation now takes a turn, as you said, the, you know, stops the hands drumming and then this conversation is going to shift gear very quickly. I do want to say, I, I only noticed that now the, the room is introduced so big, like we're, we're literally welcomed in, you know, with the opening of the doors. Yeah. And with the lighting, you don't really even notice it. I mean, you can tell it's cavernous, but you can't tell how cavernous High. it is yeah, exactly. because the lighting is so localized. Yeah. When I saw it the first time, I thought it was, uh, you know, dramatic irony that Lex is so small, like mm-hmm. he's so weak. I was kind of rooting for June here to stick it to him. Yeah. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be in this wealthy and opulent room, but really, she has the power in this exchange. And now, watching it, knowing what is actually happening, going from this great big room that they are so small in. Him walking up to the fireplace is where we get the shift where he is being shot upwards. Mm-hmm. We start in this room so massive, but the scene becomes so close. Yeah, we'll have that, a close up of the hands. Yeah, and, and we're just looking at their face. Like you get the impression that they are two feet away from each other, and the room has basically fallen away around them. I yeah. really, really did that. I, I like that in any scene where you know. We're not getting wide shots. If, if you had a wide shot of them having a conversation at any point in the scene, it would feel completely different. Like yeah. that dramatic irony would come up that now seeing it again, there's a, there's a sense of like menace mm-hmm. that builds as the scene goes on that what just wasn't there the first time. Yeah. So are you ready to talk about some horses? Um, I, I am definitely ready to talk about horses. This is, I figured one of my, my favorite things, uh, I should, I should say you can, Remove your tinfoil hats. I'm not – this is not me making my case of what the secret meaning of, of the movie is. It's just some one of the most cool, interesting, and memorable things that I've come across in kind of researching this 
yeah. stuff. And I'm going in mostly blind because you were like, I'm going to melt your brain with these horses. And so I said, okay, I'm just not going to read about horses. <laughs> you said, deny the urge to, to do some horse binging. Please. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Minimize your equine research. <laughs> We've talked about it before, and I'm, I'm sure people would look up, you know, that's one of the repeated motifs is there was the the horses in the desert. There was the horse coming out of the rubble. Let's run them all down. There was the white horse behind Lois in the tub. We come into this scene where there's another prominent one that is a little statue of a slender white horse on the bar table beside Lex that has, I think, three of its legs broken. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of talk about the, obviously, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, probably encouraged by the, you know, painterly quality of, of the later portions of the movie. But the idea of horsemen as messengers is something that we've talked about, and I think we both agree is intended on some level. Well, especially here, we're talking about Paul Revere, like the golden child of horse messengers. Sending a warning of, of a coming threat. Yeah. yeah. So, obviously, people will look out the four horsemen. I will only say... That it is interesting to me, the echo of the Four Horsemen in the story that we have told here, because boy, it would be really interesting if we had four principal characters driving the kind of superhero level of this story, even if we haven't met all of them right now. But I will entertain you now. Are you familiar with the with the Four Horsemen from the Book of Revelation, Stephen? Yes. For anyone who isn't, I will offer minimal context by saying, you know, the end of days, this is how the... The apocalypse, the arrival of doomsday comes. That's an interesting word choice there. <laughs> so before doomsday, as we kind of begin our slide into the end times, the image is painted of, I believe it is Jesus in this case, referred to as the lamb, who is, you know what, minimal context. You got a scroll. You have a scroll with seals on it. As they are removed, the observer is witnessing four horsemen that are going to bring about doomsday. The way it is read, you can find this in the book of Revelation 6. I'm going to go ahead and read it here to see if anybody sees any echoes of what might be at work in the story that we are in the midst of in the story that we're going to see coming in a level that I think is very cool. I will start with Revelation 6 verse 1. <laughs> so this is the speaker saying, and I saw when the lamb, again, Jesus with the scroll, opened one of the seals and I heard as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. People can decide whether this figure is heroic or villainous, a new messiah conquering, or the Antichrist. Uh, that is a more American, modern reading. And when he'd opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red as fire, and power was given to them that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that men should kill one another. And there was given unto him, or her, a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see, and I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand, or scales. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Which is another way of saying, this is going to become so unjust for the poorest people, that they will not be able to afford food. But don't touch the wealthy. It's the poor that I'm after. Black Rider holding the scales of justice. And then finally, when he had opened the fourth seal, and I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was Death, and Hell followed with him. He's the only one of the horses and the riders without a weapon. The more interesting thing for me is that 
translation disagrees on what this horse is going to be because I know a lot of people like me will not know the difference between a white horse and a pale horse. The main difference that I found is that it's usually referred to as like a sickly Mm -hmm. horse, either with broken legs or, uh, (laughs) you know, looking like it's seen better days, maybe a little scrawny, maybe smaller than the rest. Death, obviously, is the rider. The color of their horse is written as chloros in the original Greek, which is often translated as pale, ashen. Although it's also the stem of the word chlorophyll and chlorine, actually might be more accurate that they are riding on a green horse with hell following behind them. I really, really enjoy that a lot. I enjoyed it a lot more when I realized that Lex has a massive white marble statue of a horse tucked away in the corner of his room with a sheet pulled over its face. I don't know if you caught that. To the right of the fireplace. I I did. Well, he's also got the little horse on his desk with the broken legs. We haven't found any green, though. If anyone out there has not thought about kryptonite in a while, (laughs) I find it one of the more satisfying parallels to this that is really fun, really entertaining. I am not claiming that that is Zack Snyder's. Zack Snyder did not determine that kryptonite was green. I do not credit the DC writers with that. But I like the idea... Uh, I think we've talked about this before when it comes to biblical stuff. It is descriptive and not prescriptive. Like the idea that there is one figure who is the most powerful that will either be good or evil. And that there is the person who arrives with the scales to balance the poor against the wealthy, the good against the evil, is cloaked in black. You know, that that is not a positive thing. Well, it's kind of like an executioner, exactly being the 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 one that he wears the hood. He his identity is is hidden because justice isn't pretty. That the balancing of of scales one against another is not a good thing. And the idea of a proud rider, sword in hand, I think it's described as a fiery red. So a lot of artists use flames for this character that has the power to destroy peace around the world and turn man against man. The the first uh, horseman, that is a more noble idea of conquest. I really, really love that passage, and I really, really love how much it's a constant reminder of all of these. Yeah, well, that all comes to clash in this scene in such a... I mean, like you, you said, there's horses everywhere and sort of ushering in a scene about death in a big way yeah. and and how how Lex is is death and we've got more on that with like the, the painting in the next minute. Oh yeah. How you can't see like there's just the the black shadows in the corners of the room and that's that's really fascinating. And then also just especially reading that passage I can't not hear the man comes around <laughs> as you as you read it which is ironically the opening montage song for Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. I think it's just kind of another you know, fun detail. I like the doomsday that this is all preceding, which I always feel like I can see Lex's face when I read this part, because this is basically the future that he's envisioning and the future that he doesn't, he doesn't want, but he also brings about the kings. Oh, uh, I beheld when he'd opened the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. The sun became black and the moon became his blood and the stars of heaven fell under the earth. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? If if you're not already picturing that final fight with Doomsday as kind of blurring the line between uh, an artist's interpretation of the apocalypse, 
I would hope that this would encourage people to just because I really do think that from a visual design, I mean, if you look at, if you Googled, you know, paintings of the four horsemen, you can imagine the, the sort of fight between Superman and Batman and Doomsday as like stretching out from one side of the frame. Yeah. Well, and I'll say, I'll say real quick, just hearing again, in addition to um, the man comes around hearing, hearing you read that, I just can't help think, man, is Zack Snyder dour, I think is the word people like to use to, to describe it. <laughs> Um, so it's just so, I don't know. It's just so, so ironic to like that. That's such like a common complaint. And then you go to, to like, oh, what's something that he took inspiration from? And it's like, oh, the book of revelation, which is about all things ending. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so just like thematically, it's like, oh no, that makes, you know, that's fitting for the story, which is the kind of the most important thing about any, any tone. But yeah, as far as the visuals, I think that's something that's fascinating that he's done differently for every movie. Even in the, like the DC movies, like with 300, I think is the is the biggest example of how he kind of struck that comic graphic novel aesthetic, which I think from what I've heard Larry Fong describe about it, it's like the KFC recipe or like the Coca-Cola recipe. Like nobody knows how to replicate yeah, yeah. it except for like him and Zach. And then in, in like uh, Man of Steel, you have a sort of the documentary kind of hyper realism. And with this, it's like the color palette and the framing of everything is like a like a renaissance painting it's like like paintings that need to be restored <laughs> even almost and so and so it's amazing that the, the whole thing is very much like that in the color palette and etc um such that when you get to a scene like that the end scene that we're talking about with doomsday it's like straight out of an actual painting because the palette and everything is already there yeah we'll have an actual painting to talk about in the next minute um so i don't want to steal too much from that if that reading from the Book of Revelation does nothing else, uh, I would hope that it reminds people that it is Lex that is bringing hell with him. Because I know that he gets a lot of, he kind of takes a footnote to Batman as the antagonist, but the literal like apocalypse that is unfolding at the end of the movie, it is Lex who made it. And it was Lex who we're going to see in the next minute that comes after this is kind of committed to making that. That does it for minute 42. Do you have anything else? Um, nothing that's going to sound more interesting than what you said about the horses. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I just, I'm like a broken record on this podcast going into every minute saying there's so much more in this minute. But I think the biggest thing, the horses is, is fascinating and that adds a whole amazing layer of depth. But the framing of this scene that you pointed out, I think is one of the things I'm going to appreciate more the next time I do like a full rewatch and how it sort of flips the scale from Lex kind of swimming to Lex dominating the frame. Yeah. Just in that, in that moment of, um, sort of his facade of, of being a, you know, little boy overshadowed by daddy all of a sudden flips and he turns on her. And that's, uh, really creepy and really accentuated by the, uh, by the way, it's framed. Yeah. I, I will also give you credit for the, this must be too subtle in this scene for the uh, <laughs> inverted horseshoe shape. I guess the andiron in the fireplace that's making like an omega symbol. Oh, that's right. I totally forgot about that because I noticed that last week after the call. Or did I mention that on the call? There is a, I don't know, it's a horseshoe that's sticking up and um and it is the omega symbol. <laughs> like it's like literally the omega symbol. In the middle of the fire, yeah. In the middle of the fire, yeah. You know, I think- Anybody that knows anything about that can understand how that sort of fits in this context. I will say this next minute might be my favorite of Jesse Eisenberg's now. After this one, that's kind of a high bar. Yeah. Looking forward to it. That will be for minute 42. In the meantime, 
<laughs> I want to give another call back to the bourbon, but we can't. I was literally trying to slip a no bourbon. <laughs> and I was like, no, don't. That'll be, you're pushing it too far. And then. <laughs> I can't believe I totally forgot that we didn't talk about the Omega symbol or that, that that was even there because you throw that it's like the cherry on top. Just to just a clue in what we're actually talking about here. Here is the literal Greek symbol for the end <laughs> and dark side.